Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Blake. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. By the looks of this table, I'm one of the shorter teaching pastors here at Grace Bible Church. Anderson is apparently the land of the giants. Um, So we're going to be looking at John 4 today. You can go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to look at the story of the Samaritan woman. It's a, a story that reminds me of one of my favorite movies from the last few years. It was Hidden Figures. So if you didn't see that movie, I'm going to spoil it for you because you should have seen it by now. What are you doing not watching this movie? It's this awesome movie. It's a story of Katherine Johnson and her friends Dorothy and Janelle. They were mathematicians who were instrumental in helping NASA put men in space. But as you can see, they were African-American women living at a time when American culture assumed that African-American women couldn't do that. Because of centuries of, of racism and bigotry and oppression, the general consensus in America was that people like them could not have an impact like that. And so it's a joy to watch this movie and see these women shatter those stereotypes. Well, that's actually a really common story in Scripture. That's something that God loves to do. He loves to take people who the world thinks can't have an impact and do amazing and unexpected things through them. And that's what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 4. We're going to see Jesus encounter a woman whom the world had given up on. A woman whom in the eyes of the world was worthless and useless and could never have an impact. And we're going to see Jesus reach her and save her and transform her and then use her to do massive things in in the history of God's kingdom on earth. It's a really fun story, exciting story that I've been looking forward to sharing with you. This is kind of one of those underdog stories of scripture. Everybody loves an underdog story. Apparently God loves writing them even more than we love reading them because they're so common in the Bible. So jump into John chapter 4 with me. Let's look at this story. It begins actually with a journey. Okay, so Jesus is going to go on a journey. Look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 3. He, that is Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let me give you a little background here. Jesus is taking a trip, very common trip. In, in ancient Israel. He is traveling from the bottom of the map down in Judea to the top of the map in Galilee. And, and as a good Jewish man, he had two options for that trip, two different roads he could take. He could take the desert road across the Jordan, or he could take the coastal road that went up the coast. Now, if you look at that, you may wonder, well, both of those roads kind of seem out of the way, right? Why not just go as the crow flies. A whole lot shorter to just go directly from Judea to Galilee. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because that takes you through Samaria, a land where no Jews would go. Why? Well, let me give you a little background. Samaria's name for the people who live there, the Samaritans. The Samaritan ethnic group goes back about 700 years before Jesus to the time of the Assyria conquest. So the kingdom of Assyria took a large portion of the world as its empire, including the northern part of Israel. They conquered it, and they were incredibly cruel conquerors. And so when they came into Israel, they took most of the Jews away and exiled them to the far corners of the world. And then they took the Gentile peoples living in the far corners of the world, and they forced them to re 
resettle into those empty towns. Now, the few Jews who were left, kind of the poorest Jews of the land, did a very un-Jewish thing. They intermarried with those Gentile peoples, and that formed a new people group, half Jewish, half Gentile. We call them the Samaritans. Now, the key piece of background that you need to know in this story is that in the time of Jesus, the Jews hated the Samaritans, absolutely hated them. For three reasons. First reason that the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were genetically unclean. Because they, they had mixed Jew with Gentile. And that was not allowed in the law. And, and the Jews hated that so much that actually first century rabbis, so in the time of Jesus, they taught that for a Jew to even eat the bread of a Samaritan was like eating the flesh of a pig. You and I don't have a problem necessarily eating the flesh of the pig. We like bacon. Jews don't. Jews are not okay with that. It makes you ceremonially unclean under the rules of Judaism. Well, what the rabbis were saying is that for a Jew to even eat with a Samaritan made you spiritually unclean. You could not relate with God if you did that. Because in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were genetically unclean. That's the first reason that the Jews hated them. Second reason that the Jews hated the Samaritans is because in their eyes, the Samaritans were heretics. The Samaritans had taken Old Testament Judaism and modified it to fit their needs. And so they took only the first five books of the Bible because the rest of it seemed like it was really about the Jews. So they focused on the first five books. And they, they changed the text a little bit so that the place where you worship God wasn't Jerusalem anymore, which was in Israel, was Mount Gerizim in Samaria so that they could worship God. So they made some changes and the Jews accused them of heresy. Third reason, and really the, the biggest reason why the Jews hated the Samaritans, is the Samaritans lived on land that the Jews believed belonged to them. The Jews believed that God had given them that land, promised them that land, but the Samaritans wouldn't give it back. And so both groups, the Samaritans and the Jews, committed atrocities upon one another over that land. So by the time of Jesus, no respectable Jew would ever travel through Samaria. You just do not go there, and yet Jesus does. Why does he do this shocking thing and travel through Samaria? Well, actually, John tells you in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Well, that's not about geography. There were those other two roads that he could have taken. When John says Jesus had to, John is talking about the will of God the Father. It was God's will that Jesus goes through Samaria and Jesus always obeyed his father. So God the father wanted Jesus to go through Samaria because even though no good Jew would ever do that, Samaria was full of people who God loved. And so God wanted to introduce those people to the Savior. And so Jesus goes through Samaria, this trip that no one, no good self-respecting Jew would ever take. To show love and share grace with the Samaritans. That choice that Jesus makes, it reminds me of of a woman here at Grace Bible Church who I highly respect. She helped lead a ministry in our town called Jesus Says Love. That uh, for a while, while the strip club was still open in the south part of town on Highway 6, she and other godly women here at the church would put together care packages and take them to the strip club and give them to the women who danced. And, and when I first heard about that ministry, uh, i got to be honest, I, I was shocked. Because I grew up as a good Christian boy. Good Christian boys know you don't go to strip clubs. Not ever. Not for any reason. 
Not even if you're a godly lady. You don't go there. That's an immoral place. You're not allowed to go there. But she didn't care about my Christian sensibilities. What she cared about was showing Jesus' love to those women. And so she went. She was doing exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. He cares more about showing love to the Samaritans than about honoring Jewish religious sensibilities. My prayer is that we would be a church that would be willing to sacrifice our respectability to serve the outcasts of society like Jesus did. So Jesus is willing to take this shocking trip through Samaria. And as a result, it allows Jesus to meet our New Testament hero in our passage today. So it sets up this amazing moment between Jesus and this woman. So if you'll read with me, let's pick it up in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So it's somewhere around noon and it's hot And Jesus is tired, been traveling a long time, and so he wants some water. He approaches this well, and he's not carrying a bucket and a rope with him, so he can't get the water. The the lady, she comes up, and she has a bucket and a rope, and so she can draw water. So Jesus asks her for some water, and what's interesting is not what Jesus asks for, it's who he asks. He asks the Samaritan woman. Now, that's, that's doubly shocking. Not only is she Samaritan, we already know that Jews hate Samaritans, so that in and of itself would be shocking. But she's a she. She's a woman. And the second thing that you need to know about the background of this passage is that in the first century, Jewish men demeaned women. Jewish men demeaned women. Uh, Let me share with you some of the opinions of prominent Jewish men in the first century. The first is from a guy named Josephus, most famous Jewish historian uh, around the time of Jesus. He wrote, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. The Jewish book of Sirach, also written around the time of Jesus, says better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is woman who brings shame and disgrace. Now, here's the crazy thing. That's what Jewish men thought of Jewish women. Can you imagine what they thought of Samaritan women? Actually, we know. We, we, have a, we have a legal declaration. First century Jewish legal ruling. Samaritan women are ceremonially unclean from birth on. At least a Jewish woman could be ceremonially clean occasionally, but never a Samaritan woman. And so because of these horrific views of women, Jewish men would not speak to a woman in public. You just don't do that. Here's what Jewish boys were actually taught in the first century. I'm quoting to you from instruction given to Jewish boys. So long as a man talks too much with a woman, he brings trouble on himself, wastes time better spent studying the Torah, and ends up an heir of hell. So that's what they're teaching Jewish boys and men about women. And yet look at what Jesus does. In broad daylight, in the middle of town, he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. It's a shocking thing to do. You can tell how shocking he is because look at what his disciples say when they arrive back. Because they went off to buy some food. They come back. Look at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. They can't believe it. They're shocked. They don't know what to say. This is crazy. Jesus, you just don't do that. 
What's remarkable to me, though, is that you notice who started the conversation. It was Jesus. It wasn't the woman who, like, kind of forced him to talk. No, it was Jesus. He's the one who starts the conversation. The woman can't believe it. She's shocked that a Jewish man would talk to her. Jesus initiates this conversation. He is breaking every social taboo. He's setting them all aside. He's breaking racial, gender, and social barriers to connect with someone whom his society demeaned. When I read that, when I look at that story, it reminds me of a couple from our church. We'll just call them J and R for security reasons. They are currently missionaries in South Asia. They have a number of ministries that they lead. One of the ministries is that they gather food and medical supplies to take to a local orphanage. Now, there's actually a lot of different religious groups in their city that do that. So there's Buddhist groups and Hindu groups and Muslim groups that take food and medical supplies to this orphanage. But the Christians, like J and R... They are the only group that when they take supplies to the orphanage will actually touch the orphans. Because all those orphans come from low caste society. In the minds of their culture, they are all untouchable. You're not allowed to touch them. They're unclean. They will make you unclean. You cannot have contact with them. The Christians are the only ones who say, we don't care about your cultural rules. We will break any taboo to show love to these kids, to show them that in Christianity, there's no such thing as an untouchable person. So they're simply doing what Jesus did at the well. He's breaking every rule. He's breaking every taboo to publicly show this woman is worthy of love. So he's going to have this conversation with this woman, and, and it's an amazing conversation. Let's pick it up when it really gets interesting in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Jesus offers her living water. And she doesn't get it at first, which I wouldn't have either. It's confusing. She thinks at first that he's talking about literal water that doesn't run out. And so Jesus clarifies and he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about this gift that God gives to us of an eternal relationship with him now and in heaven forever. What we kind of tend to call salvation. Jesus is offering her salvation. She can become a child of God and live with God forever. Now, we know more than the Samaritan woman did at this moment because we know That sometime after this conversation, we're not exactly sure when, some months after this, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to purchase that gift of eternal life for us. Jesus knew that that's where he was headed. In a sense, he is offering the gift before he's bought it. He knows what's about to happen. He is offering her eternal life knowing that it's going to cost him his life. He's going to have to die for her and rise from the dead to purchase this thing he offers. So this amazing gift of salvation that Jesus is offering her. She's interested, but, but it, does, it does elicit a question. Um, 
why should she trust this random guy who's offering them her this incredible thing of eternal life? I mean, really, she doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't even know his name. She hasn't seen him work any miracles. She doesn't know where he's from. She doesn't know him from Adam. And so why should she trust him as the source of eternal life? Well, that's where the story goes next. Jesus is going to show her why it's reasonable to trust him. Look with me, starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus does something remarkable in verse 18. He, He reveals supernatural knowledge about this woman. He knows something that he has no business knowing about her background and and that's amazing that he knows this. It's so amazing that she responds in verse 19 by saying, wow, I I perceive you're a prophet. I can see that you speak for God. God reveals truth and mystery through you. So the lady is ready to to listen to Jesus. But for a moment, I want to unpack what Jesus said about her. Because for a long time in my life, I misunderstood this. I I looked at what Jesus says. He, He tells her, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Now, some of those five husbands may may have died. That happened often. They didn't live as long as we do in the ancient world. So she may have been a widow multiple times over. But statistically and just kind of logically, chances are very good that multiple of these marriages ended in divorce. So she's had multiple divorces and now she lives with a guy with whom she is not married. And so as a young man, I read that and I concluded, well, I I guess Jesus is convicting her about her sin. I guess what Jesus is saying is you've gotten all these divorces and now you're sleeping with somebody you're not married to. You are a sinner. I was wrong. You have to get into the background. And when you get in the background about law in first century Samaria and Israel, what you discover is that it was incredibly difficult for a wife to divorce her husband. Incredibly difficult. Very, very difficult. On the other hand, a husband could divorce his wife for literally any reason. If he got tired of her cooking, he could kick her to the curb. Once that woman was kicked to the curb, she was incredibly vulnerable because women couldn't work in the first century world. She had very limited legal protections. And so it was essential that she gets remarried to a man as soon as possible so that he could provide for her and protect her. And so five different men had committed to this woman to protect her and care for her and then kicked her to the curb. And the sixth guy doesn't even have the decency to marry her. He just wants sex for free. And so what Jesus is telling this woman is, I see your pain. I see what people have done to you. Jesus is telling her, I know that you have been used and abused. I see it all. 
I care about it. I'm not oblivious to it. It's remarkable because you realize if all Jesus wanted to prove to this woman is that he knows things supernaturally, he could have just told her what she had for breakfast that day, right? That would have sufficed. Wow, you're amazing. But he chooses this fact about her. Why? Because he wants her to know, I see you. I know what they've done to you. I I have compassion upon you in the midst of of all of this abuse that has come into your life. I care about it. So it's an incredibly compassionate thing that Jesus is doing in this moment. And and the woman, she recognizes that. She hears Jesus' compassion. She sees his supernatural ability to reveal truth. And so, so she asks him a very reasonable, very logical question. See, the Jews and the Samaritans have been fighting over religion for centuries. And so she asks him, okay, so you speak for God. Which of us was right? Was it the Samaritans or the Jews who are right about how you approach God? And Jesus gives a very surprising answer, neither. Jesus is actually a new day is dawning. When it won't matter if you're a Jew or a Samaritan or a Gentile, all of us can approach God equally through spirit and truth. He tells her it's not going to matter whether you go to Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. All of us, even if we're in College Station, Texas, can come to God freely in spirit and truth. That's a radical thing that you and I take for granted because we've lived in it so long. We so easily forget that for millennia, genetics and geography mattered. If you wanted to be near to God and have relationship with God, you had to be descended from Abraham and you had to be living in Jerusalem, but no more. Now a new day has come when all people, Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, men, women, rich, poor, in all places, Jerusalem and Samaria and College Station, Texas, all of us can freely approach God and call him our father. How? Because of what's said at the end of the passage. Because Jesus is our Messiah. You notice it it uses both words. Messiah and Christ. That's the same word, just different languages. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. It means the one anointed to save. So the point here is that Jesus is revealing, I am the Savior. That's why Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews. To be exact, it comes through the Jew. Because Jesus is Jewish. He is the Savior. That's his point. Through this one Jewish man, salvation has been provided to the world. And so you can approach God freely, no matter your genetics, no matter your geography, if you will come in spirit and truth. In truth, Jesus is talking about the truth of who he is as Savior. You have to come to God through Jesus, believing and trusting that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. You have to come through spirit. The reason Jesus chooses that word is because a major point that the Jews and Samaritans had been fighting over was ritual. What are the right rituals that you have to have? The right place, the right stuff you wear, the right things you say when you approach God. Jesus' point is none of that matters. What matters when you come to God is that you're filled with his spirit. No matter your genetics, no matter your ceremonies, you come freely in spirit and truth. And so Jesus offers this woman this amazing gift. You can have eternal life right now. You can have a free and open relationship with God as your father. All you have to do is come in spirit and truth. Just got to trust in me as your savior. And the woman does. 
As best we can tell, this is the moment when she believes what Jesus just said, that he is the savior of the world. So the Samaritan woman is saved in this moment, and so now it's time for her to get to work. And she does. It's, it's amazing. Let me show you where the story goes next. Let's pick it up in verse 27. At this point, Jesus' disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Now skip down to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, is it, no, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. What's remarkable as you read this is that we don't know her name. We, we just call her the Samaritan woman. We're never told her name, but we are told her impact. And it's huge. I want you to think for a moment about what just happened. This woman trusted in Jesus and she doesn't go to like seminary or a training class or a discipleship lecture. She just immediately goes back into her town. The place where she had been used and abused for years. The place where she was shamed. The place where she was looked down upon. She goes into the center of her place of public shaming. And she declares Jesus to who? To the men who had used and abused her for years. Apparently, she's really persuasive. Because they all come out to see Jesus. whole town comes out. And it tells us that the first day, many believe, and then Jesus stays another day. And on the second day, many more believe. And by the time the story ends, we're led to believe that pretty much the whole town has come to faith in Jesus. I want you to guess how often that happens in the Gospels, that a whole town comes to faith in Jesus. Once. Right here. The Samaritan woman accomplishes what no disciple ever did. She leads an entire town to trust in Jesus as a savior. This is incredible. She has an unprecedented impact. You won't see this kind of evangelism until the church age, after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. This is the only time in the gospels that you have a whole town come to faith. And it's through this woman whose name we don't even know. She has this incredible heroic impact. I absolutely love this story. I'm so humbled by this story because of how it turns our expectations upside down. It is not the upstanding, educated, well-off man who leads a whole town to faith in Jesus. It's a used and abused woman from a demeaned race who the world had given up on. She has the single biggest evangelistic impact recorded anywhere in the gospel accounts. I love how God uses the underdog to do transformative things in this world. It's what our God loves to do. He loves to save people who the world had given up on and transform them into heroes the world never saw coming. He does that over and over again. So you have Joseph who is sold into slavery and then put in prison. He's a convict. And then God rescues him and uses him to save an entire nation from starvation. 
You have Rahab, the prostitute, who ends up saving her whole family and becoming part of the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. You have Daniel, who is sold off as a prisoner of war, who becomes second in command of one of the greatest empires to ever exist. And you have the Samaritan woman, whose name you don't even know, and yet who is the one and only person in the entire gospel accounts to lead an entire town to faith in Jesus. God loves to save, transform, and use the people the world has given up on. Turn them into heroes that the world never saw coming. So I, I, want, to, I want to help you apply this and, and think about this in your own life by asking you a couple questions. So I want you to think about these two questions in your own life. First, I want you to ask yourself, are you the Samaritan woman at the beginning of the story? There may be some of you here this morning, who, when you think about your life, if, if you had to sum it up, maybe you wouldn't tell anybody this, but this is what you tell yourself. Your basic description of yourself would be failure. When you think about your life and how you've lived it, you think, I'm, I'm worthless, I've failed. Maybe it's because you've made bad decisions. Maybe it's because other people made bad decisions that hurt you. Maybe it's a combination of both. But however you got here, you look at your life and you just say, I have nothing to offer been used up. I'm worthless and valueless. No one cares about me. I don't care about me. If that's you, then you are literally the woman at the beginning of the story. And what God wants you to know is that Jesus feels the same way about you that he did about her. Jesus would be willing to break any and every social taboo to sit down next to you in public and have a conversation. He would be willing to do anything, including going to the cross and dying in your place, So that you could have eternal life and call God your father and do things that the world could never imagine. The awesome thing, I want you to think about this for a moment. The awesome thing is based on the stories we see in the Bible. If you look at your life and, and you would really say, no, the world thinks I'm worthless. You need to know that you're part of a select group of people who God can use and transform and reach the world to do bigger things than I ever will. Because that's how our God rolls. He likes to use the people who feel worthless. He likes to use the people who the world says are beyond hope. Those are his favorite servants. So if you feel worthless, I want you to know that according to this story, your best days can be in front of you. God can do in and through you more in the future than he ever did in the past. The Samaritan woman is proof of that. Second question that I want you to ask yourself Who are the Samaritan women in your life? Who are the men and women, young or old, that you come across at work, at school, in the neighborhood, at the store, just driving through town, wherever it might be, who according to the world, they're pretty much worthless. They don't have much to offer. They're hopeless. They're used up. They're not really worth your time. Who are the Samaritan women in your world and how can you show them love this week? Because that's what Christianity does. That's the fundamental nature of your religion. You are going to be like Jesus and sit down at the well with the whole world watching and engage in a conversation with a person that the whole world had given up on. Who is the person that you can engage with this week? And, And when I say engage, it may be that you serve them. It may be that you get to share the gospel with them. But it may just be that you listen to them. You're the one person who will actually listen to their story. You're the one person who will be seen getting coffee with them. 
Who is the person in your world, in your life, that is the Samaritan woman whom you can share the love of Jesus with? The wonderful thing is that if that person accepts Jesus and then Jesus transforms them and uses them, they could be the next great Samaritan woman of the earth who leads lots of people to know Jesus. You can have incredible impact through that. But it begins with you being willing to sit down at the well with a person who the world has given up on. We want you to challenge yourself this week to look for Samaritan women. If you're not ever seeing them, then you're just not looking hard enough. They're there. They're all around us. But I want you to keep your eyes open and look for Samaritan women whom you can sit down next to, who you can love just like Jesus did. I'm going to close us in prayer in a moment, and I want us to do something a little different today, a little unusual. When I pray, I'm going to ask you to to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to imagine for a moment that you are this woman. So maybe you're a guy. You don't feel connection to her. Maybe, you know, for whatever reason, you don't feel like, like you understand what it's like to be her. So let me just, let me just explain to you. If, if, if you're putting yourself in her shoes, then I want you to imagine that, that your life has been one abuse after another. I want you to imagine that you live in a world that says you're worthless. I want you to imagine that you walk down the street and you feel ashamed. You, you don't even want people to make eye contact with you. You feel so embarrassed by who you are. I want you to imagine that you feel like you have nothing to offer anyone. You don't even like yourself. Why would anybody else like you? I want you to imagine that that's you and that in the midst of feeling that way, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Son of God and Creator of the universe walks up to you. And he walks right by all the respectable people. He doesn't talk with them. He walks right up to you and he looks you in the eyes and he starts to talk. And he tells you that he's seen everything ever done to you, everything that's ever happened. He's seen it all. He cares about it. Won't be forgotten. But he offers you the gift of life. He offers you. You can call his dad your dad. You can live forever. And more than that, he offers to transform you and use you to do bigger things, more amazing things for the kingdom than any of those respectable people are doing. I want you to imagine the Son of God walks up to you when you feel completely worthless and demonstrates not only love to you, but hope. Tells you, I, I have hope for you. I can give you better days than you can even imagine. I can accomplish more through you than anyone saw coming. I want you to close your eyes and imagine that that's you. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God of grace. We praise you and we thank you that Christianity is not about what we do. It's not about our respectability. It's not about our maturity. It's not about what we bring to the table. It is completely about what you have done for us. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you cared so much more about showing love to this used and abused woman than keeping up with the religious sensibilities of your day. We praise you, Jesus, that you're the kind of Savior who loves to reach people the world assumes are unsavable. We praise you that you touch the untouchable, that you rescue and transform people who the world has given up on, and that you use them to do absolutely breathtaking things. 
And so, Lord, we just come before you, and for a moment, we want to put ourselves in the shoes of this woman. We want to imagine how amazing and transformative it would be to have lived her life and then to have the Son of God look us in the eyes, speak to us in full view of everyone, and offer us the gift of eternal life. Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, we confess that the only reason we get to call you Father is because of what your Son did. We haven't earned that title. We haven't earned that opportunity or privilege. But Jesus, the one and only human who's ever been by right able to call you Father, he chose to die for us in our place to take our punishment. And then he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for us. We praise you for that, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Jesus, that in your incredible mercy and love, you made it possible for us to relate to your Father as our Father. We pray, we beg you on behalf of anyone in this room who feels too far gone to be saved. For any person here who feels just too guilty that you could never love them, that you could never forgive them, we pray, help them to see themselves in the eyes of the Samaritan woman to see you, Jesus, offering them forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. Help them to see a smile on your face, Jesus, that you love them even when no one else does. We pray that they would trust in you as their Savior this morning. We pray for all of us who have trusted in you as our Savior. We know that we are now called, just like the Samaritan woman, to go into our town and to share the good news of Jesus the Messiah. We pray that you would help us to see the Samaritan women in our community, the men and women whom the world has given up on, the men and women who are so easy not to see. I pray, God, that you would convict us and challenge us. Open our eyes to see them. Soften our hearts to love them like you do. Help us to be the kind of people who are willing to sacrifice comfort and respectability and break any taboo to share your gracious love with people the world has given up on. We pray that you would use us, just like Jesus at the well, to reach the Samaritan women of this town so that they can be saved and transformed and in turn reach this town even better than we can. We praise you and thank you that you can do such amazing things through people the world has given up on. May Grace Bible Church be a place where that happens all the time. Thank you, Jesus, that you are such a good, good Savior. Thank you, Father, that you are a Father to us. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Keep your eyes open for Samaritan women this week.